This episode is a special edition of CISO's Insiders. Today, I will be speaking to Mark Mandel, a veteran SOC 2 auditor. We'll discuss the SOC 2 framework versus the ISO 27001 framework. We'll answer key questions many startups companies at early stages ask themselves when they first encounter compliance requirements and even provide some quick tips and worksheets to get you started on your way with complying with either ISO 27001 and or SOC 2. So welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll we'll have a special edition uh, episode today where we'll be talking to Mark Mandel, a SOC2 editor, um, SOC2 auditor, and uh, the founder of MHM, a CPA firm focused on digital trust and data governance. Uh, after almost 25 years with PwC leading projects around the world, it was time for Mark for a change. Uh, mostly change of pace. Um, and right now, Mark spends most of his professional time delivering SOC 2 audits uh, for smaller um, companies and uh, his personal and spends more of his personal time with, with his wife and four kids. Uh, definitely sounds like a nice change of pace uh, from being in different uh, like cities two, three times a month. Um, and as I said, uh, this will be a slightly different structure today. We'll be more focused on discussing SOC 2 questions versus ISO 27001, hopefully providing some clarity around those two standards. Uh, I'm assuming, uh, you know, a lot of uh, companies, mostly startup companies and, and smaller companies, they, they usually, you know, they all uh, face with the same uh, obstacles and questions and constraints around the two standards. And hopefully we'd be able to provide some clarity as well as, you know, some, um, some value and, and even maybe some, some written materials about that. Um, so Mark, passing the ball to you, if, if you wanna provide some background about yourself, some introduction. Yeah, fantastic. And thank you for having me today, Ben. It's very exciting to uh, be able to participate in this session and hopefully share some experience that will, you know, help bring a few insights to um, to our audience here today. So I've been a, a CPA for these almost uh, more than 25 years now. Started my career in financial audit with Coopers and Librand uh, before they had merged with Price Waterhouse. Um, and very quickly came to realize that um, while being a, a CA was interesting, being a financial auditor was not. And with my hobbyist background in computers and IT, um, I had my first computer, which was a Commodore PET in 1979. I was four years old. Um, and so decided that it was going to be an interesting shift to move into our practice that was more focused on IT audit. Um, so spent um, up until 2009 um, in that practice in our Toronto office, um, doing a lot of work around IT audit, um, both from an audit and a consulting perspective. So helping clients determine what controls needed to be in their systems and applications, helping them do that, and then evolving also into more of the data analytics and data governance space and starting to bring all these different pieces of technology uh, together. I moved out to Calgary in 2009 um, with my, uh, my wife and my son who was one year old at the time. Um, I've had three more children since then um, and uh, left uh, PwC um, in the fall of 2019, uh, as you mentioned earlier, to start up my own, uh, my own accounting firm. So right now, focus primarily on SOC 2 audit, um, a little bit from a readiness and consulting perspective as well, um, and really focused, unlike when I was at PwC, where I was dealing with a lot of large um, companies, some in global in nature, now it's kind of bringing it down to the small uh, startup enterprises and helping them achieve what a few years ago was something that um, either wasn't considered necessary, um, and when it was, was considered um, very difficult to achieve, uh, primarily from an understanding and a cost perspective. Yeah, it was, uh, I would say it was almost unattainable, I think, 
you know, if we go back a few years for smaller startup companies that, you know, needed to produce SOC to report. Um, and, and as you mentioned, Annie, I, I think from a price perspective, uh, uh, that was a big challenge for them. And I think that's how we got to know each other because we, one of my companies, we work mostly with startup companies and, you know, we had a need, especially out here in the U.S. to, to have an, an auditor that we, that, you know, we know that's, that, that, that has the capacity and the ability to work with smaller companies and, and uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, that really serves a fit in the market nowadays. Um, yeah, and and you know, I I looked I looked at my career, and you know, I might be an auditor, and you might consider me to be an auditor now, but I really looked at my career as being um, a consultant who audits, as opposed to a maybe more of a traditional um, auditor. And you know, one of the things I really now enjoyed about working with more startup companies, especially those doing this for the first time, is it allows me to bring my 25 years of experience to the table. And you know, with respecting the the boundaries around independence and how auditors need to operate, um, still bring the best of what I can to help clients figure out what is the best way to achieve this goal, um, and you know, put themselves in a good position without making things more difficult than they need to be. Um, which I've seen along the way is something you can get caught up in very easily. Yeah. And you mentioned independently, independent and impartiality, I think. And I, I think from my experience as an ISO lead auditor as well, there's a very fine line between, you know, providing guidance and providing advice or even consulting. And we as auditors need to be very careful about that. Uh, and I know this was, you know, uh, but, you know, as, as long as you've mentioned that, I'm curious about your thoughts about that. So... Uh, what yeah. what would you say like how how would you draw the the line what's the boundary here? So there's a very clear um, boundary to me when it comes to design and implementation, um, which are things that as an auditor we cannot get involved in doing. Um, where where that the other side of that line is I think around providing guidance and being able to help clients evaluate what the right approach would be to design and implementation. And if they're looking at different solutions, helping them maybe giving some guidance as to the pros and cons of those different solutions. Hmm. Um, you know, getting our hands dirty uh, is something that we, we can't do because then we're going to be auditing our own, our own work. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of value that can be had for helping the client understand what is good enough um, and making sure we stay on the right side of that, of that boundary. And listen, every auditor is going to have their own perspective on where that line is, quite, quite frankly. Um, you know, some want to be a little more binary in nature in terms of that relationship, um, and others are a little more comfortable getting closer to that fine line um, in the interest of helping their clients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. And just to add some personal color about yourself. So you mentioned already, I think that you you have four kids, I believe uh, ages eight to 12. Is that correct? Eight to almost 13 now. Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, yes, I have a, a 13 year old. Uh, my, my son um, will be 13 in March. Um, and then I have three daughters age 10. And our, my uh, twins are aged eight. Um, and one of the one of the exciting stories I like I like to tell about about my family, which um, I think is fascinating. Um, my uh, when we moved to Calgary and we found out we were pregnant with our our daughter, uh, my wife very much wanted to do a um, a home birth. So you know, not traditional in at least Canadian standards. Um, and it took her months to convince me, and I was finally convinced. And we ended up having a home birth. Um, but not exactly the way we would have expected to. Um, our, our, our daughter, Eva, came so quickly that our midwife um, was still at home getting ready to drive over to our house to help deliver the baby when she started um, coming out. So I had the luxury, as I say, of having my headsets on, speaking to the midwife on the phone while she's giving me instructions on how to help my wife 
um, deliver and what it is we kind of need to do until she arrived. So it was, you know, talk about, you know, a lot in the market about laser focus, about adrenaline taking over. I, I can't think of a crazier situation where all of those things rang true, um, you know, exponentially, where, you know, something so, so miraculous that could have gone so wrong, um, fortunately went, went very right and ended up being a uh, tremendous experience for us overall. And something I will never want to repeat, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. To mostly to the la- to the last statement uh, but yeah and that was even before zoom right <laughs> so uh, oh yes um, it, it was literally a speakerphone on the side of the bathtub with you know her her in the car giving us instructions and relying on me to relate to her what I was seeing happening in front of me so um, yeah wow. it just shows you that when when the babies are ready to come they're ready to come yeah yeah that's crazy. Well, uh, and another staple question that I usually ask is about your favorite drink. Mm. So my favorite drink, um, I, I'm a beer drinker, um, as most Canadians tend to be. Um, so uh, I would say Black Velvet would be my favorite, uh, which for those who don't know, is a combination of Guinness and typically a cider, um, Strongbow cider, if you want to keep it in the Guinness family where the cider is poured first um, with half the glass and then the Guinness is poured on top of it. And because of the differences in the, um, the densities and the viscosity, if it's done right, the Guinness sits on top of the Strongbow while it, when it's presented to you. And it's uh, quite an interesting contrast in flavor and texture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. And, uh, and uh, I think we're ready to dive in. And let's start discussing, you know, and providing some clarity about SOC 2 versus ISO 27001. Um, so, you know, I, I really wanted to to ask, to get your opinion on that, because I, I've been asked this question numerous times from a lot of companies, mostly startup companies uh, in the tech space. They always struggle with the, the initial question of, you know, what to do first? What should we do first? Should we go the SOC 2, ra- the SOC 2 route? Should we go the ISO 27001 ra- uh, uh, route? Sorry. In your opinion, what's the difference between the two? What's the difference between a, having a SOC 2 type 1 and type 2 reports and, and having an ISO 27001 certificate? Great. Um, so I think first, let me say, before we get into the differences, they're both good. They're both valid, um, and and I think you know having having at least one of them is better than having none of them. Um, so you can't you can't go wrong with at the end of the day by by choosing one or the other. Um, as long as you're choosing one of them, um, I think you'll be far better off. Um, in terms of the the differences, primarily from what I see, you know, twenty seven thousand one is really focused on the information management uh, security management system. And in your certification, being able to regularly demonstrate to your auditor that you're following those standards, processes, procedures you've put in place. Whereas in the SOC 2 and the Type 2 report specifically, um, it focuses on the design of the policies and the controls over the data and systems you have in scope and whether they're operating effectively. And those may sound like two very similar Kind of statements, and I think I think they are. Um, but really, what what it is is ISO um, has a fairly um, articul- well articulated and defined structure you need to follow to be certified and to maintain that certification. Where in SOC two, it's a little more um, variable, where you have some choice as to what trust criteria are relevant for you. Um, and exactly how you want to implement and operate those so long as they meet the intent of what those categories and criteria are and an auditor agrees with the program that you have put um, in place. Uh, practically, I do find that you know ISO is a little more documentation heavy um, and a little more focused on making sure that um, you do have all of the right you know, um, I's dotted, T's crossed compared to SOC 2. Um, and I would also say that 
you know, SOC 2 tends to be more, I would say, well-recognized in the North American market, although um, it is starting to penetrate into the European market a little bit based on what I'm seeing. Whereas I think for a lot of companies that operate on an international basis, um, ISO is something that is far more readily recognized um, in those other markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and definitely that's my assessment as well regarding to the the, the fact that SOC2 is well recognized in North America as opposed to ISO, which is more recognized in Europe, I think, and the rest of the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, because as you mentioned, I think uh, both uh, frameworks have like similarities, but uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you think ISO was more about crossing, you know, crossing the T's and, and dotting the I's and it's more uh, documents focused. In, in your assessment, do you think SOC 2 would be considered a more technical audit than ISO? Um, I don't think it's necessarily more technical in nature. I just think it is, it leaves a little more open to the discretion of um, the implementer than, than ISO does. So a little, a little less prescriptive perhaps than, um, than ISO is. I mean, listen, both require processes both require procedures that are documented, that are followed, and demonstration of your ability to follow those. Um, But I do find that the the ISO standards for what that documentation includes um, is a little heavier than it is for SOC 2. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Um, and do you? And just a final question uh, about this. Uh, you mentioned SOC two is more well recognized here in the in the U.S. and, and North America. Do you have any um, any reason you think for for why that is? Um, I mean, I think ISO generally is recognized as a global standard. You know, they've been around for a long time. Um, you know, there's lots of different ISO standards that are out there that companies adopt to. And I think a lot of them adopt those standards because it is internationally recognized. And that's one of the features of, of that. Um, you know, SOC 2 is something that has evolved over time through various iterations and really has been driven out of the AICPA in the United States, um, the CPAs in, in Canada, and while there is international recognition and adoptability of that, um, it's really been driven from those organizations out and their focus is naturally, you know, Canada and the United States, given those are the markets that they, they regulate and operate in. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's what, uh, that was my assumption as well. Um, so so going, going back, and I think I alluded to that in the first question, but um, as, as you know, as, as we've, uh, as I mentioned, young, young startups are, you know, they, ha- they ask the, the initial question, what to do first. So do you have like mm-hmm. any, you know, advice or triggers in mind that a young founder or even not a young founder necessarily, but a young startup should ask itself before making the decision what to do first? Yeah, I think there's a few. Um, The the first one is, and and I would say some of these relate to just whether you want to go with either of these, forget which one for the moment. Um, What is it that's driving you to want to adopt one of these standards and become compliant? Is this something you want to do to demonstrate to your stakeholders and customers that you are following a set of guidelines and you have a certain kind of minimum standard in place that you can demonstrate? Or are you being pressured by those as you get bigger and you start dealing with larger organizations, are, are they demanding this of you in order as you know to do business and almost as a, as a pretext or as a dependency? When you start getting into one versus the other, um, I think you need to look at how much time do you have to demonstrate that compliance? SOC 2 typically is easier to adopt and demonstrate um, on a quicker basis than ISO, um, at least based on my experience. And um, if you've got a lot of the SOC 2 controls in place, a lot of companies are already doing a lot of those things, but maybe just not in a formal manner. So to be able to demonstrate that um, is doable without putting together all of the, you know, the management system and that, you know, structure 
necessarily around it quite in the same way as with ISO. Um, and then, you know, I think also, you know, you've got the difference between a type one and a type two and the SOC two scenario where the type one gives you an ability to, um, even though it's not as valuable a report, do something on a far quicker basis than either SOC 2 type two or ISO 27001 would allow you to. And that's really used to get the ball rolling and to give you know, customers something on a near immediate basis that they can start working on that at least gives them some comfort. Uh, you've been um, validated by a third party. Okay, and and I think we we might be be touching about this later on, but as long as you mention it, maybe maybe just expand on it now. You mentioned uh, the time frames about uh, you mm -hmm. know SOC two versus ISO. Can you elaborate on like what what would a typical um, SOC two project look like from a time uh, standpoint for type one and type two? So I've seen clients achieve um, type one. Um, including the, the actual time period of doing the audit and producing the report. Um, I've seen that done in as little as three months um, from, from start to finish. Um, because that report really focuses on the design and implementation of controls, you need to demonstrate that it's in place and your intention to operate those controls. But what that does is it allows us to short circuit a lot of the testing to a, um, an example of one and therefore get at that quicker. Um, for type twos, uh, you know, I see as little as kind of five months if we're looking at a, a minimum three-month audit period. I try to encourage my clients to consider a six-month audit period for their first go-around, which kind of makes that process seven to eight months from um, from end to end um, in your first year. I'm sorry, seven to eight months, including type one, or just for the type two? Just for the type, uh, just for the type two. Um, you know, with, with SOC 2, you do have the option. Type 1 is not a mandatory step along the way. Um, some companies like to do a type 1 and then move to a type 2. Um, others of my clients go direct to type 2 and, and don't do any sort of uh, interim uh, kind of report. Whereas with ISO, you're, um, I think you're a minimum generally about a year um, from what I've seen from the start of your program through to your first certification. Um, and, and there's a couple of steps along the way where the auditors are not in once, they're in a few times through that, through that journey, um, but it tends to be a bit longer um, to get that first kind of report out the door. Okay, so just uh, to provide our listeners with a quick recap, so typically uh, three months is doable for a type one report in SOC 2, and for a type two end-to-end, around seven to eight months, you said? Right? Yes. Okay, got it, great. Um, do, do you think uh, SOC 2 and ISO 27001 can play well together? Meaning, can they be integrated into like a single framework for you know those organizations that do not want to have two separate compliance programs managing those separately? Um, absolutely. I mean, they are very complementary, and there is a lot of crossover between between the two. Um, and at the end of the day, they're both focused on security and and helping you demonstrate that you've got secure practices underway, that you're treating customer data in an appropriate manner, um, and that you've got the right process and controls in place to deal with any threats that may um, may come to your organization. Um, you know, so I think they very much can work together. And I do see companies that adopt both given their somewhat different market uh, presence um, around the world. Uh, I do see more of companies going from SOC 2 first and then into ISO than the inverse. Um, again, some of the reasons we talked about with SOC 2 being, I think a little more straightforward to, um, to adopt in the early days um, it seems to be a more natural stepping stone to do that and then leverage a lot of what you've put in place for SOC 2 to now meet a lot of the ISO standard and top that up um, afterwards. But I would say, you know, you're, you're probably in the, you know, 70 plus percent, you know, commonality in terms of topics and, you know, technical requirements between the two. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And when coming into a SOC 2 uh, project or a SOC 2 audit, whether it's type 1 or type 2, what do you think, uh, what should a customer be wary of? Um, first off, I think find an auditor that you can work with um, is, is pretty, pretty important. And um, engaging with that auditor as soon in your process as possible. Um, you know, I, I see instances both sides where, you know, companies have engaged with me very early on, which allows me to provide some guidance to give them insight into the audit process as they're putting their program together and getting ready to be audited. Um, and I find that that level of preparation and um, has a lot of uh, a lot of value to it and increases the chance of success um, in the first go around. You know, I think the biggest misconception with SOC 2 is that it's a, it's a pass-fail exercise, you know, kind of like your, your university uh, courses or a test you might write. You know, there's, there's varying degrees of what a, uh, what a what qualification could look like and what exceptions could look like. And I think as a company, understanding a little bit about what that means will help you get a better perspective of what the audit is going to be and how your auditor is going to help you work through some of those items um, at the end of the day. I think you also need to be in a very good position to articulate um, what your system environment is. An auditor isn't going to know anything about you when, when you're going to first engage them. So it's really up to you to be able to describe what are the systems you use? How do you use them? What is customer facing? What kind of data do you, do you have? And I find going light on those details or withholding information for whatever reason along the way um, only makes it more difficult for the auditor to truly get a sense of what the scope is. And at the end of the day, our objective is to make that scope as tight as possible for you and make that audit and that report as meaningful to you and your customers as possible. So as much transparency as you can introduce into that process, um, it's in everybody's interest at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And and I think uh, uh, I think another difference that there, there might be between ISO 27001 and SOC 2 is the SOC 2 report will state things as they are, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, so, so that means that if there is a, I'm not sure what's the what's the jargon for that, uh, like concern or um, or um, like a flaw in the system or something like that, that would be mentioned in, in mm -hmm. the report. I forgot the specific term for that. Yeah. So there's so there's a few a few ways of looking at it. Um, you know, if there are minor exceptions in the testing and controls, you know, those would typically be noted. Um, towards the back of the report where we describe all the controls and the tests performed. Um, if there are more significant um, exceptions that would um, lead to higher levels of risk or you know, potentially demonstrating that you know, the, the trust principles aren't being met in some way, shape or form, you would typically see a qualification in the auditor's opinion. Um, and that would be where we would state explicitly what the nature of the concern is, what trust criteria that related to. So the user is very aware of where there might be um, either limitations in design, limitations in the way the client has described what the system is doing and whether the audit is supporting that or not, or just, you know, some controls are immature. And especially in your first time around, you know, may not be operating the way you thought they were. And while you might have an opportunity to improve those, um, the user needs to be aware of that um, at the time that they're reading that report. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and I think you touched on my next uh, question briefly, but can you just, you know, sum up uh, uh, as, as quickly as you can, like what's the main difference between type one and type two reports? Because I get this question a lot from a lot of our customers mm -hmm. as well. Um, so let's let's be clear to start with. I think type type two is the report ultimately that everybody is going to want to see. Um, yep. That talks about your ability to demonstrate the operating effectiveness of your controls over a period of time, as well as whether they're designed and implemented appropriately. But you can't operate them right if they're not designed right. Um, the type one is a point in time report that only focuses on design and implementation, does not provide the, the auditor an opportunity 
um, to test those controls and how they've operated, um, or as, as a company for you to articulate that they're operating effectively, because that hasn't been done. One of the reasons why you're able to do a type one quicker is because of that more limited scope, um, but that also makes it inherently less meaningful for stakeholders at the end of the day. Yeah. And by stakeholders, I mean, you might be referring to internal stakeholders or uh, external stakeholders, such as, you know, it might be a VC, it might be customers that want to sign, uh, you know, an agreement with your company, yeah. et cetera, right? Okay. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, typically it's, in, you know, existing customers, potential new customers, um, and then, yeah, you know, and then anybody who has a, a stake in how you're doing business um, day to day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, can you uh, provide some clarity about the trust principles in SOC 2? Sure. So there are five, five categories of, of, of trust principles. Um, um, in addition to common, what are known as the common criteria, which are the requirements that need to be met regardless of what scope you end up picking. Uh, we have security, we have availability, confidentiality, privacy, and process integrity. Security is the most common one you'll, you will see in the, um, in the market in addition to the common criteria. And in order to adopt some of the other ones, it really is dependent on what the nature of your business is. If you're heavily into transaction processing, for example, and you're supporting financial institutions or an insurance company, um, process integrity might be something that you want to include because it clearly demonstrates the controls you have over how you process those transactions and make sure the outputs are correct and usable by your um, by the users of this report at the end of the day. Um, it's really key to understand, um, this is where understanding your environment, understanding what you want to demonstrate to your customers and getting a sense of if you're being asked by customers to do this, what is it they're expecting to see? Um, you know, what is it they want you to demonstrate, whether they know what those trust categories are or, or not, um, you know, getting a sense of what are the key elements, the key controls within your organization are they looking to see? And then, you know, look at the effort to ultimately put those in place. I see a lot of organizations that start with security in year one because it's baseline, it's foundational, and it's, you know, the critical thing everybody is looking for. But then in year two, consider adding on um, one or more of the other trust criteria because it is an important part of the business and something they want to demonstrate, but they don't, they don't have the time um, or don't want to put the focus in in the first year because going through the audit in and of itself is such a, a new experience for them. Um, they want to increase their chance of success as, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Thank you for providing that clarity. Uh, I'm sure it will help a lot of our, uh, uh, you know, customers. Uh, and I know my next my next question relates to time frame. And I know we've discussed this, but uh, you know, and 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 you alluded to the fact that you're trying to you know push your customers to having at the minimum like a six month period before you know uh, for the type two audit, if I'm not mistaken. But I just wanted to provide more clarity to our listeners about the limitations there, because like recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and this is a real life example. I, I had a customer who approached me and really pressured us to get uh, a report within two months. Now, and, and, and I think it's doable under some limitations. Can you provide some clarity around that? Sure. Um, you know, you can, if you're talking about a type one, certainly doing it within two months is, is, is doable. Um, if you've got everything well organized, you understand what your controls are, and really you're at the point of needing an auditor to come in and validate. Um, you know, even in a type two scenario, we can look backwards if, if you are comfortable as a customer, um, which means we can get a report in a relatively short period of time. But I find, you know, for a customer going through this for the very first time, rushing into it um, has a lot of risk and a lot of danger associated with it. Um, you don't always know what to expect. You likely have questions about your scope and about the controls that need to be in place. And giving yourself some time to work through that, prepare properly for that, and really make sure you're setting up the start of your audit period where you are totally comfortable 
that everything is in place and everything is going to be operating the way it's expected to um, is paramount to making sure you're successful at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I've seen some customers rush into it and it ends up taking a lot longer than they expected. Um, and they've made commitments they now can't uphold or they end up short circuiting some of what needs to be there and you find that controls need to be reworked, um, which just lengthens the process again and potentially leads to a report that isn't satisfactory to them um, at the end of the day. So I would encourage you to balance the needs of, you know, somebody giving you pressure to do something quickly, your desire to have this out of the way as quickly as you can with really setting yourself up to do it right, which should then set yourself up going forward um, for this to be a relatively routine way of, of operating um, and the audit process being fairly smooth your second time around. Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to interpret your words, uh, you know, in, in a more dumbed down version, right. your, the, the minimum time frame for a SOC 2 type 2 report is not, I mean, there isn't like a, a mandate that it has to be like over a minimum period of time. You you just, um, in your experience and probably in most uh, auditing companies experience, you need to have a minimum period of time in order to set up the system for success. Is, is that a correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you need a minimum period of time to set it up. And then once you're into your audit period, um, I have yet to see an auditor that will do a type two audit with less than a three month observation period. Anything shorter than that doesn't really give us the ability to um, provide an opinion as to whether things are operating effectively or not. There's also a lot of controls that happen on a quarterly, semi-annual or annual basis that you would not have an opportunity to even demonstrate in a, you know, in a six week or in a two month kind of um, observation period. So three months is the, is the minimum generally recognized i would say six months is the sweet spot in your in your first time it provides you more of an opportunity to demonstrate more of an opportunity where if you had hiccups early on in that observation period and you're doing things better along that six month window um, if an auditor finds exceptions to what they test the first thing they're going to do is pick more samples and do some more testing yeah and Right. So if I pick 10 items and I have a problem with two and I pick another 10 and they're all good, you know, the likelihood is that's a pretty immaterial exception at the end of the day. And there's probably an explanation. Somebody had a bad day or something where those two resulted. Um, and you just have a much better chance of working through that in a six month period. I encourage customers not to look at nine or 12, um, which would be your more typical kind of ongoing attestation period in your first go around because it, it almost leaves things too long. It leaves you to your own devices for too long. And um, if there is something not happening the way it should, you know, you're much further down the path, running a risk of having a report that is qualified or not satisfactory than being able to do one at a six month mark, potentially do another one six months later, and now you're, now you're good to go and you're still on that first one year period. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that clarity here. So basically, I mean, we you could possibly, you know, pick out pick out a shorter time frame, such as three months. But then, the customer might have more exceptions than you know than what you usually would expect, and and, and we're trying to avoid that that in the report. Yeah, either more exceptions or your ability to, I would say, demonstrate that those exceptions were one-off items as one opposed to, you know, persistent items um, is just, it's a lot harder in a shorter period of time. And that's as an auditor, you know, we're, that's a lot of what we're looking at and the judgment that needs to go in is there, there is no rule or is no directive around what an exception means at the end of the day. Um, it's up to us to kind of determine with the guidance that's available to us, how relevant is something, how much risk do we think is introduced as a result of an exception um, and the, the shorter the time period we have to work within, the harder it is for us to work those judgments in the favor of the client um, and, and make things less problematic than maybe they looked at initially. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
moving on to the next one. So <clears throat> I've heard a lot of founders and CEOs of startup companies refer to compliance as a bunch of BS. <laughs> What's yeah. your take on that? Um, I, I, I actually don't disagree with that, Ben, to some, to some degree. Um, you know, I think compliance for compliance sake is, is BS. You know, you can tell somebody you're doing something and have an auditor come in and certify and everything. And if you don't, if you're not adopting that and that's not becoming part of the way you do things day to day, um, it's kind of meaningless, I think, um, you know, I think what you need to consider is, especially for SOC 2, this is all about trust. And this is all about finding a way of engendering trust that your customers are going to have in you. They're relying on you to provide them a service. They're relying on you to handle their data appropriately and be open and transparent about how that works. Um, and, and I think being able to introduce those concepts into your organization use this as a mechanism to do that and have somebody that's an independent third party come in and validate that, yes, you are doing that and providing some guidance on where you could do it better is, is only going to make you stronger as a, as a company um, at the end of the day. And it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to help you get more customers or it's going to help you retain the customers you already have. And we're seeing more and more in the market that, you know, Customers are becoming more savvy, not only individuals, but, but you know, companies as customers. And we're starting to see more that these are, these are table stakes now. It's no longer a luxury to be working with a SaaS company that has a certification. It's, it's expected. And if you don't have it, you know what? You've probably got five competitors in the market right now doing something very similar. And if you don't and they do, then you run the risk that the business is going to go um, elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree with that. <clears throat> uh, what's the one common myth about SOC two that you'd like to debunk? Oh, I I would say two. Number one, if if I can, um, yeah. So the first one being that this is some funky thing that the auto profession made up just to make money. Um, I've had more than one client push back on me to you know, wonder if there's actually any work involved in from an auditor in doing an audit beyond just signing a report at the end of the day. Um, so yes, there is, and there is a lot of risk that we take on as part of that. Um, I think the bigger one is that this has to be done. So unlike a financial audit for a public company where, you know, there are regulations that means you need to have financial statements audited by a certain type of um, uh, of, of firm um, to be able to continue to operate, it's not required in, in this space. So it is completely voluntary. Now, there are a lot of benefits to doing it, but it is something that you should choose as an organization that you want to. And just because one of your customers says, well, I'm going to expect you to do this, they're not expecting you to do it because the regulation says so. It's that this is what they expect to be comfortable doing business with you. And the choice you need to make as a company is, you know, is that business valuable enough for me to warrant going through the expenditure and resource commitment and everything to be able to become certified? So it very much is a business and trust decision, not a, this is something that you are forced legally to be involved in. Mm -hmm. Okay. If there's one or maybe two uh, key takeaways that uh, our listeners can take out of this session, what what would they be? So I think the first one, we, we talked just a little bit about it in the last question is, you know, SOC 2, ISO, regardless of what the standard is that you're, you're adopting, um, look at it as a way of demonstrating to your stakeholders that they can trust you. And that you you are um, worthy of their of their business and holding their their data. Um, I know that may sound like a high standard to adopt, but that that really is what we're trying to get at at the end of the day with with all of this. Um, secondly, um, and again, regardless of whichever standard you happen to pick, try to find an auditor you can work with and engage with them as early in the process as possible. Um, if you align on scope and you align on what needs to be done and you have insight into what your auditor is going to be looking for, 
everything else will naturally fall into place um, from that point forwards. Yes, there's a lot of work to do. Um, there might be a lot of change you need to do, introduce in your organization, but you have a good idea of what that end state is going to be and how you need to get there. And if you engage with an auditor very late in the process, you run the risk that they're now gonna ask you to do something different than the investments you have already made. And, and that just creates a difficult situation for everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, and actually this is, uh, again, this is a different type of podcast today. So I think for the first time uh, since I started recording, uh, I will pass the torch to you. And I think you have a few questions for me. Sure. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a quick drink because I've been talking way too much over the last uh, few minutes. No worries. So your your business is very much focused on um, ISO and you're, you're an ISO 27001 lead auditor. Um, you know, what have, um, what was the experience like going, going through this and helping, um, helping companies become ISO 27001 certified? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, as, as some of you might know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the co-founder of a group of companies. One of those companies called Concilium Labs has recently gone through a process of becoming ANAB, ANAB accredited, actually, as a certified body. That means that that company, specifically Concilium Labs, will is providing providing nowadays uh, ISO 27001 certificate and audit uh and audit uh, uh, projects. So the process itself, you know, it was a lengthy process. It's been a long road. I personally learned a lot from that process, you know, and being an auditor myself for various standards such as PCI DSS, WLA, uh, Swift, and so on. It's, it's not that I was unfamiliar with the audit world, but getting the accreditation from ANAB, ANAB, it's been, you know, it's been challenging on one hand and very educational on the other. I personally, Think I learned a lot from that, and you know, right now the main concern for me is to keep our impartiality in place because you know, having you know, being the founder of two companies, one providing consulting services, the other one providing audit services, we have to have very clear boundaries, as you as you know probably, uh, and you know, we can't share customers, we can't um, do any any joint efforts in that regard. Uh, but I think, you know, it goes back to the design. We designed it in such a way that there's like a very clear boundary between those two companies. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a long road, but, uh, but I think it's, uh, I learned a lot, as, as I said. It's, it's been good so far. And that's where, you know, I'm, I'm excited about, about knowing you and having had the opportunity to work with, with you and, and your clients along the way, Ben, that it, it provides us, I think, a really good ecosystem where, if one of us is consulting, we can look to the other to be the auditor and vice, and vice versa. So there's a lot of client sharing we can do amongst friendlies while still maintaining that, in, that level of independence. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you asked me um, a few minutes ago about, um, you know, executives thinking compliance is, is BS, and I provided you my perspective on, on that. Um, I'm going to ask you a similar question, but in a slightly different way. You know, we've we've seen a lot um, in the market about you know recent security incidents that that have happened, um, and some discussion around the difference between um, being secure and being compliant. Um, do you maybe have some perspective about you know how those two relate and maybe how they're how they're different? Yeah, um, definitely. So you know, for me, I think compliance is only BS if the organization takes it takes it as such, and you know, do the minimum possible, meaning putting a bunch of documentation in place and making sure they pass the audit. And there are all kinds of ways where you can you know pass cer certain audits, uh, but as long as you treat it like as a pile of documents, um, I don't believe that will provide you any value. Personally, I think compliance, whether it's ISO 27001 or SOC 2 or any other framework that uh, an organization might adopt, I think it needs to be, it, first it needs to have leadership support and it needs to be very tied into the business needs. Um, so having a, a, a compliance program in place or an ISMS or a SOC 2 compliance program in place, 
needs to be very aligned with the business and what it is that you're doing. So, you know, if mm-hmm. your organization deals with a lot of PII, PHI, you want to design the system that manages it and provides all the controls and meets all the information security objective, uh, objectives. You want to, to have a system in place that actually helps you help the organization, you know, achieve a number of goals here. One is to actually keep the data secured. B, to assure, uh, provide assurance to your customers that you're doing what you need to be doing in, in order to keep their data secure. And if you're working with, you know, in the, in the B2B space, that, I mean, that's very important because no, like, you won't be able to work with a large enterprise system especially here in the US and, and, and not in Europe as well, without being able to satisfy, you know, some compliance checklist that you'll get from your, from your customers. Now, having a, a compliance, an efficient compliance program in place that might include ISO 27001, it might include SOC 2, it might include GDPR, HIPAA, or any other frameworks here, actually, prov- I mean, the intent is to provide you with a baseline that eventually will also, um, you know, provide resilience in the way that you protect the data. So if you take it, uh, you know, if you do it right, it should reduce the number of incidents. It should provide you with some guidance and clarity on what to do in, in, you know, in, in, in a sense of how to avoid the incidents and breaches and how to deal with them when they happen, right? So and, and even that even that even you know the note the notice uh, the notification the breach notification that you need to to be able to communicate it with your customers and your regulators and you know DPAs and so on. If you don't have a process in place and you just scramble around when when it happens, you'll be in uh, uh, you'll be in a much bigger problem than what you would have been if you had the compliance program to begin with. That's my opinion. Yeah. You know, as, as CPAs, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the preventative controls and detective controls. And, you know, you could have a lot of preventative controls in place and do your best to try to avoid um, being hacked and avoid data being breached. But the reality is we can't always keep up with what all these people are trying to do to get into systems. So in parallel, you need to have the right detective controls that not only can you identify when it's happening, but have a very structured, efficient way of responding to that and mitigating the risk um, and not fumbling through for the first time, trying to figure out how you how you deal with it. That just runs the risk of exacerbating um, any potential problem that's out there. Yep, I agree. I, um, so we talked a little bit before about, you know, SOC 2 and the difference between type 1 and type 2 audits. Um, I understand in ISO 27001, there's um, a concept of stage 1 and stage 2 audits where there are multiple points where the auditor comes in to look at things. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on on what each of those stages entails and um, what to expect from your auditor in, in them? Sure, of course. So, um, you know, the full ISO certification cycle, the ISO 27001 certification cycle is, is a three years period. Now, when you go into a customer that's just setting up uh, his uh, ISMS for the first time uh, and along any, any certification cycle, you need, you need to uh, always start off with uh, what we call a stage one and only if they pass the stage one can you move to stage two. Now, stage one basically is the point where we come into an organization and we assess the the effectiveness of the ISMS. And again, ISMS is just a fancy word or a, you know a typical a specific jargon uh, created by ISO. Um, you can you can substitute it for anything like compliance program or cybersecurity program or anything like that. But basically we need to come in, we need to assess the ISMS. We need to make sure that the system is in place. And again, the system is not just a, a pile of policies and procedures. Uh, the system is a management system that's, that is designed in a way that it would be able to address any, you know, 
anything from breaches to physical security aspects to access control to any other you know aspect that you might consider um, implementing under your cybersecurity program. So we need to come in, we need to assess that the system is efficient and that the processes are not broken and that everything is set up in place. Um, only, only if we have the, the comfort in, you know, assessing and validating that the ISMS is actually in place and it's efficient and there are processes in place. And even if, you know, some of those processes were never tested, they can be tested on paper during the stage mm -hmm. one audit. So as long as we have that comfort, we will recommend to the internal certification committee to move on to the next stage, stage two. Uh, and during stage two, this is where we actually go in and take a deeper look into the environments, into the, the platforms, into the, the applications, the systems, collect evidences, look at logs, you know, interview developers, interview key stakeholders in, in the organization and what have you. Uh, and stage two is the, is the stage where we will be looking at, if, if you're familiar with ISO, so it has mostly two sections. There are the clauses, four to 10, and there are the controls were elaborated in, in the annex, annex A. So stage two is where we will, um, you know, deep dive more into the controls list. And actually the, the customer has the, the freedom here to determine for, for itself what controls might be applicable, uh, others might not be applicable. This is actually where they can actually also use some of the SOC 2 controls because, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the statement of applicability. Now, once mm -hmm. we're done with that, there is usually like, you know, a checklist that we work with. And this is where we will note if they have major nonconformities or minor nonconformities. And once they're able to to produce some evidences that the non-conformities were addressed. This is when we will move on to the next stage where we will recommend to the certification committee internally to issue a certificate. And that's the end result. So the customer will have uh, on loan, it, it will have uh, an ISO 27001 certificate stated with you know the with the version of statement of applicability some customers might ask for you know the list of controls from the customers but mo most of them will just be satisfied with a iso certificate i'm hoping mm. that answered the questions yeah interesting so it, it i mean at the the high level it sounds similar to the SOC 2 process other than it being a, a mandatory two-stage versus a um a discretionary two stage, but the the primary nature of what you do and what you're looking for is um, is very similar in in nature at the end of the day. Hence, I think the you know the overlap in the controls and the ability to ultimately achieve both of these should you want to uh, to go down that path. Yeah, definitely. And and personally, I think that's you know that's the way to go. I don't think organ an organization should have two separate compliance program to manage SOC 2 and ISO 27001 separately. That's just uh, you know waste of internal resources. Yeah, agreed. Um, what do you think is one important and maybe the most important thing would say that you know a company needs to think about uh, before deciding to embark down an ISO 27001 certification path? Uh, without a doubt, I think leadership support. Um, and you know, I, I alluded to that in, uh, I actually gave out a webinar uh, the other day, last uh, last uh, Thursday to the local Isaka chapter. Um, and one of the misconceptions that I was speaking about is that ISO 27001 is mandated and owned actually by IT. It's not owned by IT. It's owned by the organization. And if you don't, if you don't have, to, you do not have the leadership support for that, you will not be able to succeed in your endeavor in becoming ISO 27001 compliant mm -hmm. and certified. We actually have like one customer now, nowadays, I think, that are struggling with that because they do not have leadership support. They have the budget in place, they have everything in place. But you know, at the end of the day, you need to set up some processes. You need to get some approvals. If you don't have that, you you will have find it very difficult to become in with becoming ISO 27001 compliant and certified. Yes, and it, I mean it. You know, regardless of which standard we're talking about, it has to be an organizational-wide effort at the end of the day, and and to maintain that uh, needs to be across 
uh, across the organization. Interestingly, I, I've seen more and more companies now um, in, in the SOC 2 world where the product team are actually the ones that are driving this, this desire to be compliant because they're the ones that own the product the customers are using. So they're, they're that primary interaction point with the users and stakeholders of these reports. And while IT provides a, a pretty important you know, role in this from a, a technology perspective, it, it is only a piece of the ultimate uh, program at the end of the day. Yeah, that's interesting. So one, one last uh, question, maybe to, uh, uh, before we, we wrap up here, uh, you know, board of directors commonly misunderstand um, their role in security or downplay their role in security and believe it's, a, it's an operational management matter and not something you know, they need to really have any involvement in. How do, you, how do you change their mind in that? And how do you convince people at the board level that this is something they need to take seriously and that there is a level of accountability there whether they realize it or not? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great question. And I think it goes back to the type of relationship that I have with, you know, various customers. If I have an open line of communication with leadership, I will try to explain the rationale behind it, which is simple. At the end of the day, your company owns data and deals with data that's, you know, that you need to take care of. You're mandated to take care of either by contractual obligations or, a law like with CCPA or GDPR or, uh, you know, or even the payment brands. And at the end of the day, if you're mistreating the data, you know, that become that then becomes a legal issue. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not an, attorney, an attorney, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, we've all seen the news for the past 15 years. We know what can happen to some of those um, mm-hmm. fiduciaries, I think. Um, so, and again, I'm not, I will never resort to scare tactics. I will just try to explain, you know, the, the responsibility that one's ha- that one has with, you know, dealing with data that, uh, that he actually, you know, collects on behalf of someone, usually a private individual and the responsibility, there is a responsibility in protecting that data, whether it's payment information or personal information or health information, uh, you know, some someone needs to take responsibility. And again, it's a legal issue, and um, I don't want to dwell into the, the the legalities of this because I'm I'm not an expert. But uh, you know, it could come back and and bite some leadership in the ass if if they do not take uh, if they do not get their act accordingly here. And you know, if you just delegate it to to someone in the organization without that does not have leadership support, that does not have the budget and resources, uh, you you might live to, to the day where you might regret regret that decision because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if something happens, I think your your head will, will, will be on the line, not theirs. So, yeah, again, and, and at the end, and, and you run the risk that, you know, if we go back to the concept of trust, the last thing you want to be seen as as an organization is being untrustworthy. And I think if you if you break it down maybe to that very basic principle um, and you want to avoid being viewed as that, it takes everybody in the organization to play a role in engendering that level of trust. Yeah, definitely. And look, it comes back to the to the risk appetite and risk management practices of that company. If if I'm talking to a CEO and a founder of a company, and, and you know, and they might say, "Look, we're not, we're we're not that. Uh, I mean, we can live with that risk. I mean, it's their decision. It's the it's a business decision. They they lead the ship. They will need to deal with the consequences. I think my role as an educator in in that sense is just to to elaborate on you know." why they need to have compliance in place and mm-hmm. what are the, the the implications for not having compliance and you know they, they, they need to decide whatever they think best so yeah Very that's good. my approach yeah. I, I i would agree wholeheartedly yeah well i think i think we're almost out of time here so you know so i, I just wanted to before i thank you and we're wrapping this up 
uh, for our listeners, wh where can, can where can they connect with you online? What's the best place for to connect with you? So you can connect with me. Uh, my website is mhmcpa.ca, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm fairly active there, both personally and um, and through my firm. Mm -hmm. Or reach out uh, reach out to um, either of us as a response to to this podcast, and uh, we'd be happy to uh, engage in a conversation. Okay. Thank you for that. And we will also be publishing um, uh, some, uh, maybe you wanted to give some, uh, some, uh, some information about that. We'll be publishing uh, something out of you and uh, a combined statement of applicability with some SOC 2 controls out of, uh, on our side as well, just to provide some value to our customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've, um, I've, I've put together a short, uh, a short paper, it's only a few pages long, a, a fairly quick read, but really focusing on some of those early questions. We talked a little bit about it today around, you know, why you should do this, what the right approach should be, what should be in your scope. Um, so asking some of those questions and providing some different alternatives and, and certainly my recommendation on, you know, what to consider um, while embarking down the early stages of this path, both figuring out is this something you should be adopting or not? And if you choose to do it, um, how do you make sure you're setting yourself up for success? Okay, thank you for that. Uh, and with that note, uh, we can wrap this up. Uh, Mark, let me take this opportunity to thank you for your time and for your insights. It was, as always, a pleasure um, talking with you. I'm hoping that the insights that you provided would resonate with some of our listeners. Uh, I sure have learned a lot here. Uh, even though, you know, I've been dealing with SOC 2 as, as a bystander for a few years now, uh, you did provide some clarity for me as well. And, and, and thank you again and enjoy the rest of your week and stay safe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for joining us for another episode of CISO's Insiders. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more professional content, please check us out on social media.